So if you're using your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 12. And we're only going to progress a little bit today, but we're going to dig into anti-Semitism, which is the hatred of the Jews, hatred of the Jewish nation. And continue what we did last week. So basically, Satan hates the Jews and anything to do with God. And hopefully we'll continue to understand that at the heart of everything, the battle is over what? The main battle of the universe. What's the big battle over? The souls of mankind. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter about anything else. But the eternal destiny of your soul, that's what God is fighting for. Okay, that's what God has done. Everything he can to win back to himself. So through Jesus, God has made a way for all men to be saved. But he has also given every individual the free will to choose to receive his gift of pardon, the forgiveness of our sins. So God's desire for us is that all men be saved. But Satan's desire for us is that all men be damned. His will is opposite to God's will. However, it's not up to Satan. The choice is ours. Those who choose to accept God's gift of pardon receive eternal life and are spared being in torment in hell for eternity. And by believing in Jesus, a person can be declared not guilty before God because the blood of Jesus has cleansed them from all sin. So I just want to put a verse up for you. It's First John 1, verses 6 to 10. And it says, But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So we're not just talking about, oh, yeah, I'm not a perfect person, made mistakes. No. We're talking about the condition of our hearts. Our hearts are inherently sinful. We sin because we're sinful. <laughs> when does a horse thief become a horse thief? Before he steals, yeah. Yeah, because a horse thief wouldn't steal a horse unless he was a horse thief, yeah? So, in the same way, we sin because we're sinners. Sinning doesn't make us sinners. We're born that way. So I'll read that again. But... If we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And that's light is living in righteousness versus dark, living in an evil, an evil life, a selfish life. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. And there's many people who think that they're good people, and they're fooling themselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. This is necessary for initial repentance, but it's also necessary for a continuing walk with God. Continual repentance. We repent initially, asking God to forgive us of our sins, asking to be made right with God. But then, on a day-by-day basis, we continue to put this verse into practice and continue to and keep short accounts with God. 
So repentance is an ongoing process. It starts the day you're saved and then it just keeps going because there's always things that God is working on in our hearts. So what it means where it says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, is that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he died in our place. His sacrifice was the one-off sacrifice, the one only sacrifice that paid the sin debt of all mankind. So, remember, according to God's perfect standard of justice, every thought, word or action, or everything we think, say and do, that breaks God's Ten Commandments, God's perfect law, is punishable by death. And death in the Bible is not talking about the physical death where their heart stops going, you know, that's physical death. The death in the Bible as a result of sin is separation from God for eternity in hell or the lake of fire. So the Ten Commandments include lying, stealing, being disobedient to parents, not loving God with all your heart, making something more important than God in your life. That's called having an idol, hating, lusting, and coveting. So God's standard of justice is so high or stringent or severe because God is perfect. He's perfectly holy. He's so good. He cannot look upon sin. How many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to get cast out of the garden? Just one. Yeah. How many sins does it take for us to be separated from God? Just one. Yeah. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and have fallen short of God's perfect standard. To sin means to miss the mark. And do you know where that word comes from? Yeah, it's an archery term. See, there's a bullseye. And if you hit the bullseye, you've hit the mark. If you miss the bullseye, you've sinned. So if you imagine the Ten Commandments are the bullseye, if you keep all the Ten Commandments all the time, you've hit the bullseye. But if you miss just once, then you've sinned. And you're a sinner, you've missed the mark. And that's what it means when the Bible says all have sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all missed the bullseye. And the Bible says that because we are sinners, we cannot enter or inherit heaven. And that's the big problem. And the Bible puts it very bluntly. It says in Isaiah 59 verse 2, But your iniquities, your guilt or depravity, have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So the solution to this problem is to repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Now what does repent mean? Mm-hmm. So 180, isn't it? So you turn away from doing what you want to do and start doing what God wants you to do. It's a submission of your will to God's will. We stop living for ourselves and start to live for God. And to trust in Jesus for forgiveness means that you believe and understand that when Jesus died on the cross, it was him dying in your place, if that makes sense. Jesus was there paying your penalty. You should have been there, but he died in your place for you. So the perfect man was punished for the sins of the guilty people. So the example is you're in a courtroom. You've been found guilty of breaking the law. And guess what? Someone walks in and they say, I want to pay your fine. And you've got the choice now. You say, I'll accept your payment of my fine and you go free. Or, no, I don't want to accept your payment for my fine. I'll go to jail. (laughs) That's the choice we have. That's as simple as it is. So God won't force his love on anyone. We can refuse this gift of pardon, of forgiveness, of being set free. 
So where does the nation of Israel come into all this? We started talking about anti-Semitism. Well, we went through this last week in detail, like the seed. Okay, so last week was important. So I'm not going to go back into it again, but just the seed, the promised seed is the Messiah. It's Jesus. Jesus was predicted and promised to come through the nation of Israel. So Israel is the chosen nation that God used to bring the Savior of the world into the world. So Jesus was a Jew. His parents, Mary and Joseph, were Jewish. He was a descendant of King David of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham. So think of it this way. If there's no Israel, then there's no, there's no Savior, no forgiveness, no going to heaven for anyone. So Israel is the focus of God's plan to provide salvation to all mankind. So if you were Satan and you wanted to disrupt God's plans, who would you attack? The Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And that's been going on. And just a quick sneak preview into chapter 12, and we'll come to this verse more next week. Now when the dragon, that's Satan or the devil, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, who represents Israel, who gave birth to the male child, who is Jesus. And so the idea here is that Satan persecutes the woman representing Israel because she gave birth or brought forth the Savior, the promised Messiah, Jesus. So that's the whole thing here. Satan doesn't want anyone to be saved. Satan wants to stop people from coming to God, and so he's doing his best to disrupt God's plans. So last week we started to learn a bit about our enemy, Satan. And what do we know about him? Well, he hates God. He's in rebellion against God. His sole mission in life is to oppose God and keep people from knowing God. And thus, the battle of the century, the battle of the universe, of the ages, is over the souls of mankind. Everything else is insignificant. You know, governments and wars and whatever. It's the souls of man that is the most important thing. So, Satan, as we also touched on last week, is only an angel. He's not the opposite of God. He's the opposite of Michael the Archangel. And God is so far up here, so much more powerful, that it doesn't matter if all the angels rebelled, God would still have everything under control. It wouldn't matter. But as we learned last week, two-thirds of the angels were faithful, one-third were unfaithful, and so there's a ratio of two good angels to one bad angel. So I'm just going to go back into our dispensation chart, and this shows us how things have progressed and where things are going. So this is based on a literal interpretation of prophecy. So God made the world about 6,000 years ago, and this very short time period here, we don't know how long it was between the time that God made or created Adam and the time when Adam and Eve sinned, but that's we call that the age of innocence, okay? Well, the dispensation of innocence, where there was no sin. Then we have the fall of man, and that's roughly 4,000 years before Christ, and people just lived according to their conscience. You know, Cain and Abel are examples there. Abel brought a, a sacrifice, got approved of that, but Cain, he had a bad attitude. He was rebelling against God. And then, that goes on for about 1,500 years, and then you come to the flood. And the flood is God's judgment on a wicked world. And then after the flood, God gives human government 
as a gift to the world. And so God establishes human government. And ever since the end of the flood, there's been human government. And in that time period, between the flood and Abraham, we have Babel and the confusion of the languages and all that kind of stuff. Then God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and he tells him, let's go. Doesn't tell him where, but he gives him a promise. I'm going to make a nation out of you and through you and your seed, singular, all the nations will be blessed. And eventually there's Isaac and then there's Jacob and the 12 sons and they go to Egypt. They come out of Egypt and about 1500 BC we have Moses at Mount Sinai and of course he gives them the law and Ten Commandments. And from then until the cross, until Jesus came, we call that dispensation of law because the Israelites were under the law. They had to keep the law with all the sacrifices and rituals and stuff at the temple. But then Jesus came, and he came, died, rose again, ascended back into heaven. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And now we're in what we call the Age of Grace or the Church Age. So the church is God's tool to spread the gospel, to spread the news about him. I think we're about here, <laughs> really close, because Israel as a nation, I'll show you another chart later, Israel as a nation has become a nation. That happens just before the tribulation period. So Israel has become a nation. They are there in their nation now and went through that last week. And there's a seven-year tribulation period coming where God is going to judge the world through a series of judgments but the church will be in heaven will be going up Jesus will come and collect us and we'll be in heaven with him then after the tribulation there's a thousand year rule and reign of Jesus where Jesus rules on the earth Israel receives all the promises that God initially gave Abraham and then at the end of that there's a great white throne judgment where all the Unsaved people are judged, condemned to the lake of fire, and the earth and heaven burned up, and God makes a new heavens, new earth, and we have eternity with God in this new world. So that's basically the, the game plan. That's the history of the world. And I just gave you that so you can fit these things in as we go through. So the first coming of Christ is here born roughly 0 AD, and then the second coming of Christ is at the end of the tribulation. Okay, so first coming, second coming, and he comes to collect the church just before. So that's how it all fits in. That's how the nation of Israel fits into God's plan. So we talked last week that Without the nation of Israel, there'll be no Messiah, and if there's no Messiah, then there's no salvation. So Satan is out to destroy the nation of Israel, and that's why there's this disproportionate hatred of the Jews in the world, and it's always been that way. So, Satan is in the background causing various people groups, religions, and individuals to persecute the Jewish nation and the Jews themselves. And there's been one massacre, one persecution after another of the Jewish people. So why is this and why does God allow this? If they're God's chosen people, why does God allow or has God allowed 
the Jews to go through so much suffering. Like, for example, just one example is the Holocaust. You know, six million Jews were killed. Well, it's interesting scripture in the Old Testament. I'll read it in a second. In the Old Testament, God predicted that the nation of Israel would rebel against him. They were still in the wilderness, and God knew exactly what they were going to do. God knew the decisions that the nation would make. And prophecy is always fulfilled literally. Okay, God tells us what is going to happen before it happens because he's in control. It's an evidence of proof that he's in control. And so God gave us this prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 64 to 66. And it says, basically, just the context, God said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. And if people go, wow, I can't believe how you're blessed. And people go, wow, God's real. But, on the other hand, if you disobey me, you'll be cursed. And people go, wow, I can't believe how cursed they are. God must be real, because he said that this would happen. Okay, So whether Israel obeys or whether they don't obey, it's still proof of God being in control. So Deuteronomy 28, 64-66, if Israel turns her back on God, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wooden stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night, and have no assurance of life. If you go through the history of the nation of Israel, that's a very accurate summary of what they've been going through. They've been kicked out of places, persecuted, murdered, all through history. So remember that because the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah when they demanded he be crucified or nailed to a cross, that made the way for them to be scattered all over the earth, as the prophecy said. In 70 AD, what happened? The Jewish temple was destroyed because the Jews rebelled against the Romans and the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and they were scattered, literally, all over the world. And they were hated most of the time. But, in 1948, according to prophecy, Israel, in a day, became a nation again. And we went through that prophecy last week. Now, here's another question for you. Why would God allow the Jews to go through that suffering? I mean, we've already kind of half answered that. God said it would happen if they disobeyed him. But I just want to apply this to ourselves. We think about the Holocaust when Hitler murdered 6 million Jews in World War II. Well, it doesn't stop there. Like any good parent or father, God disciplines. God's divine discipline is designed to cause a change of heart. That's why us as parents discipline our kids, yeah? It's designed to cause a change of heart. It's designed to cause repentance or encourage repentance. And it's for our good. Now we look at what we go through and we go, is this really for my good? Six million Jews killed. Is that really for the good of the nation of Israel? <laughs> yes. 
we can't understand how God works sometimes, but when we get into heaven, what do the angels say? What do the people in heaven say? Good and faithful are your judgments, O God. Okay, Good and faithful are your judgments. We look back and we'll say, that was perfect. That was perfect justice. God was fair all the time. So this discipline that they were under because they had hard hearts and rejected Jesus as a Messiah was only temporary in May 1948. May 14, 1948, Israel was again declared a nation after almost 2,000 years of exile and suffering in all countries around the world, or a lot of countries around the world. And the prophecy there was Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, which basically describes that happening. In addition, the Bible tells us that Israel will never ever be destroyed from being a nation again. Now, has that been fulfilled in our generation? Yeah. You think of the, the 1967 war, the, the Six-Day War, Yom Kippur War. Israel was hopelessly outnumbered by their enemies, or by her enemies, and God supernaturally protected them. We've been watching a bit of a video series at home about the way that God supernaturally, you know, one tank <laughs> defeats a whole battalion and the whole battalion just turns around and goes away, you know. So God is, is keeping his promises. God is showing that his prophecies, that what he says, it will literally come to pass. So here is another chart. And I just want to show you this one. So on here we have Israel being declared a nation. So we have Jesus coming down to earth as a baby, being born, living perfect life, dying, rising again. But here Israel is declared a nation. And as I said, we're close. The rapture happens. Now in the tribulation period, we have this time of seven years and it's split into two halves. We went through that more last week. Then you got in the tribulation and the thousand-year rule and reign, new heavens and new earth. So just to remind you of that, so what's the next event that's going to happen? The next prophetic event? Israel has become a nation. They're being protected. They're blessed. The nation is green, as the Bible predicted. The rapture. The rapture is going to happen sometime. So all these things are happening, and it's just pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ. And after the rapture happens, as Antichrist confirms a covenant with the nation of Israel for seven years and halfway through he breaks that covenant. And then he persecutes Israel for the last three and a half years and then Jesus comes back at the end. So what I want to do now is explain practically how the persecution of the Jews started over the last 2,000 years since Jesus came and died and rose again. So after the cross. How did the persecution of the Jews start? We know that Satan is at the bottom of it, but how? what did he do? Well, I'm going to give you the conclusion at the start. Unfortunately, the church was complicit in the persecution and the suffering of the Jewish people. And it still is. Hal Lindsay calls this the road to Holocaust. And for the Jews, there have been many Holocausts, many periods of death and destruction. So here is the root problem. It's the idea that prophecy should not be taken literally, but rather allegorically. Well, that means not literally, okay? They thought, those people who 
started to think of prophecies being allegorical, that God had finished with the Jews, and that the promises that God gave to the Jews were transferred to the church. I mean, you think about back in the second or third century, the 200s, right? Israel is scattered all over the world, they're being persecuted, they don't look like a blessed people. And so you read the Bible, Israel, the nation of God. They don't look like it. It must be the church. Let's reinterpret this to be the church. <laughs> Not getting the big picture that God would discipline them and that what they're going through was actually predicted. So, basically, I'll give you an example of allegory. If I say I'm going to hit the sack, I don't mean that I'm going to literally find a sack and hit it. I mean I'm going to go down and find a place to sleep, right? I'm going to have a rest. And the problem is that the Bible is, most of it, except for poetry and right, Psalms and Proverbs, most of it is literal. All the narrative, like Genesis, all the Kings, Chronicles, the Gospels, it's all literal history. It's things that actually happened. And prophecy is also literal. So there's signs and symbols, but those signs and symbols have a literal meaning. And once you find out, you just replace the symbol with the literal meaning and you've got the meaning of the passage. And like for example, Satan is represented as a fiery red dragon, as you learned last week. He's not literally a fiery red dragon, but it tells us something about him. They calls that a sign, and a sign in the scriptures is telling us that it means something. It's telling us that it's informing us about that particular person or or thing that's happening. So I want to give you some examples of literal fulfillment of prophecy and of the stories in the Bible. For example, literal history is the days of creation, the seven days of creation. Jesus referred to the seven days of creation as being literal. Okay. Examples of literally fulfilled prophecy include Jesus was born as a virgin, and Isaiah 7.14 predicted that. Jesus was literally sold or betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and Zechariah 11.13 predicted that. Jesus' clothes were literally gambled for, as predicted in Psalm 22.18. And just 72 years ago, Israel literally became a nation in one day, as predicted in Isaiah 66 verse 8. So these prophecies just aren't old like thousands of years ago, but these are in our current generation. And we read that one last week as well. So you can go on and on with hundreds of literally fulfilled prophecies. Everything that God said would happen has literally happened, just as he said it would. We even learned a few weeks ago that Jesus literally rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the very day that was predicted in the book of Daniel. So God hasn't left anything to chance. But despite all this obvious literal fulfillment of prophecy, even in our generation there are many in the church who insist that the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled are not meant to be taken literally and therefore can't mean what they say. So let's go back and see how all this began in the church and we can learn some lessons here and hopefully avoid making the same mistakes I made in the past. So the first person responsible for introducing this doctrine, this bad teaching into the church was Oregon. He was a church leader, they call him a church father in the 3rd century after Jesus and he introduced the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible, especially prophecy. Now this followed on, and the Bible teachers, the church leaders who followed him, 
they embraced this new idea, this teaching. And one of the main people was Augustine. And he lived in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, and he systematized, formalized, organized, and finalized these ideas of allegorizing prophecy. And you might be thinking, well, so what? Well, the result of it was the Catholic Church said, where are the new Israel? <laughs> and if they're the new Israel, then how are you going to treat the real Israel, the old Israel, <laughs> the nation of Israel? Okay? That's the problem. Augustine, based on origin and stuff like that, he decided that if Israel had rejected Jesus as their Messiah or Savior, then God must have turned his back on Israel. He's rejected them. And now the church is the recipient of all the promises, covenants, and blessings that were given to Israel. But I just want to point out that to come to this conclusion, all of them, Oregon, Augustine, the Catholic Church, had to ignore specific and repeated Bible passages where God emphatically promised over and over again that he would never reject Israel, no matter how much they rebelled, and that he does have a future for Israel, as we are witnessing firsthand today with them becoming a nation. So just one example. It's Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. I've got a point to all this, okay? So bear with me. There's a, there's a point to this. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day and the moon and stars to light the night and who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His name is the Lord of heaven's armies and this is what he says. So have a look at verse 36 there. It says, I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. Is God going to abolish the laws of nature anytime soon? So is God going to reject his people Israel anytime soon? <laughs> okay. This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. And as I said, there's quite a few passages which are just as clear as that. So is it possible that God would break his promises and reject Israel? <laughs> no way. So, back to the discussion, the result of interpreting prophecy allegorically, that not taking it literally, was that the church became the new or spiritual Israel. And they considered that the real Israel, the nation of Israel, was discarded and rejected by God. This is called replacement theology. So if you're talking to people and they mention replacement theology, this is what it is. This is something that's happening in the church today. It's a teaching that's spreading through the church. So why is this important? Well, ideas have consequences. Replacement theology says that the covenants, blessing, and promises made to the nation of Israel, that is, those physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are now transferred to the church. And so the church has this attitude towards Israel. A lot of the people have this attitude towards Israel. It goes like this. How dare the Israelites or Jews claim to be God's chosen people? What claim do they have to the land? How impudent, haughty, arrogant and prideful for a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to claim that they are still a distinct people, that God has a future for them still. That's not for Israel anymore, that's for the church. Israel messed up, Israel is out of here. Israel is rejected by God because they condemn Jesus. 
You've probably heard that before. They murdered Jesus. Their history. So that's the negative attitude that comes through this thing. And this is one of the main tools that Satan has used to cause the intense persecution and suffering of the Jewish nation. So, since the 4th century after Christ, there have been three anti-Jewish policies, and they are these. Conversion. So if you're a Jew, you better stop calling yourself a Jew, or move out. If that doesn't work, it goes one step further. Expulsion. You have no right to live among us at all. And if that doesn't work, the next step is annihilation. You have no right to live. You don't even have the right to live. And look, the Nazi destruction of the Jews didn't come out of nowhere. This is a cyclical trend. It's been happening for generations. Go back to the 4th century. The missionaries of the early church said to the Jews, you have no right to live among us as Jews. That's what they said. You need to convert to Christianity. You can't be a Jew. God's finished with the Jews. You need to convert to Christianity. That led to the second phase. The secular rulers then said to the Jews, you have no right to live among us. And they were kicked out. Has anyone seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, that's a sad story of I can't. It was what nation was it? Russia. Yeah, but anyway, they were in a particular country. It was a foreign-speaking country, and basically, they didn't like the Jews, and they made them really poor and, and difficult to live in. And then finally, they just said, "Get out." They were expelled from the country had to leave everything behind. And then that leads to the third phase, which is annihilation. And the Germans, Nazis, or the Muslims, whoever it might be, at that particular time or place, then decreed that the Jews had no right to live. And this cycle has been repeated again and again through history. So what's important is where it all started. It started in the church. It all started with a theological error in the church. And these people were well-intended. So here's something to consider. Your method of interpretation is key to everything. An incorrect interpretation leads to an incorrect conclusion and therefore an incorrect application. If you have the wrong method of interpretation, you will come to the wrong conclusion. And saying that the Bible deals with eternal issues that have eternal consequences, we need to be careful. If you buy your kid a, a model car for Christmas and they misinterpret the instructions and it turns out looking more like an aeroplane, it doesn't matter. You know, just do it again. But if you misinterpret the Bible and come to the wrong conclusions and wrong applications and you cause your church, the people in church, to not look like Christians but start acting like something else, <laughs> you know, to be not as Christ wanted them to be, then that's a big problem. If you're causing the Christians in your church to, there's another application, to instead love the Jews and have a desire to see them saved, but instead to hate them and to say, oh, you know, you guys are awful because you killed the Messiah, that's not good, okay? And God will hold you accountable. Those who teach the Bible are going to be held to a very strict standard. So consider this. The apostles always interpreted prophecy literally. Jesus always interpreted prophecy literally. And all fulfilled prophecy has been literally fulfilled. So we need to take prophecy literally. Now, another example of a man who made the same mistake and continued on in the footsteps of Oregon and 
Augustine, another church father, but a later church father. He's the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Now, for a thousand years or so, the Catholic Church had allegorized the entire Bible. They didn't take anything literally, and they had all these weird ideas about how to be saved and about all different things. But Martin Luther came along and he rejected all that. He came back to a little understanding of salvation. He came to understand that a person is not saved because of their works, church attendance, rituals, sacrifice, service, or giving money to the church, as has been taught for a thousand years in the Catholic Church. So basically, Luther got it right when he said that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is based on Christ dying in our place and paying the penalty for our sins. That wasn't taught in the mainline church for a thousand years. Basically, it was really sad. They called it the Dark Ages. And it was the Dark Ages because they didn't interpret Scripture properly. Okay, It was allegorical. They didn't take it literally. But sadly, by the end of his life, he still interpreted prophecy allegorically. So Martin Luther still interpreted prophecy allegorically. He still taught that God had rejected the Jews. And did you know that Adolf Hitler and others used a quote from Martin Luther, or more than a quote, a book? Martin Luther, respected man of God, was used to justify what they had done to the Jews. So I've got a quote in Wikipedia to show where this leads, okay? This false teaching. On the Jews and their lies is a 65,000-word anti-Judaic and anti-Semitic treatise written in 1543 by the German Reformation leader Martin Luther. Luther's attitude toward the Jews took different turns during his lifetime. In his earlier period, until 1537, or not much earlier, he wanted to convert Jews to Lutheranism. What did the early missionaries do in the 4th century? They wanted to convert the Jews, right? Convert, expel, and then annihilate those three steps. But he failed. In his later period, when he wrote on the Jews and their lies, he denounced them and urged their persecution. In the treaties, he argues that Jewish synagogues and schools be set on fire, that prayer books be destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, homes burned, and property and money confiscated. They should be shown no mercy or kindness, afford no legal protection, and these poisonous, quote, poisonous envenomed worms, end of quote, should be drafted into forced labour or expelled for all time. He also seems to advocate their murder, writing, quote, we are at fault in not slaying them, end of quote. The Wikipedia quote continues, the book may have had an impact on creating anti-Semitic Germanic thought through the Middle Ages. So you see with the Hitler, well, Hitler was German, right? Holocaust happened in Germany. Where did it start? Started in the church, all right? Started with Oregon right in the start, and it's continued on Augustine through the Catholic Church and continued on through Martin Luther. So I just read this last section from the Wikipedia quote. This book may have an impact on creating anti-Semitic Germanic thought through the Middle Ages. During World War II, copies of the book were held up by Nazis at rallies. Can you imagine that? I reckon Luther be turning in his grave. I don't think he intended that. But that's where these ideas led. And the prevailing scholarly consensus is that it had a significant impact on the Holocaust. Since then, the book has been denounced by many Lutheran churches. 
So, conclusion concerning Luther. Luther was so right when it came to interpreting the doctrine of salvation, but so wrong when it came to correctly interpreting prophecy. And because he embraced replacement theology, he unwittingly supported the Holocaust. And that should be a lesson for us all. Now, this is spread across all denominations. It's not something that's just in one or two denominations. It's kind of a blanket thing. And you find churches in, I reckon, every denomination that will teach this. And the result is that Satan is using this to make people think that the Jews have no rights as God's chosen people, that the church has replaced them, and there is no place for them in God's kingdom. And again, the three anti-Jewish policies are conversion, expulsion, annihilation. What did Muhammad do? He tried to convert them. He couldn't do it. He tried, then he expelled them. Then he's Muslims now try and kill them. On and on it goes. This church should not have this attitude toward the Jews. Paul says in, I won't read it now, but in Romans, that we should be trying to be a witness to the Jews to bring them to the Lord. That's the church's role, but with this replacement theology stuff, we're actually driving them away. We're a terrible example. Not all the church. We have a lot of Christians going to Israel, friends of Israel, encouraging them, being a good witness, but there's a lot of, of the opposite too. Now, as I said before, a thousand years at the end, that's when God is going to fulfill all the old promises made to Israel, the land, the, the population, and all the other promises that he gave them. And they are going to rule with Jesus and with us for a thousand years. Now, this gives me hope for myself. Here's a personal application. Israel is obstinate and rebellious towards God. Well, so am I sometimes. Sometimes I find myself under God's discipline, just like Israel was under God's discipline. Yeah. Yet, I am still a child of God. God still has a future for me, just like he does for the nation of Israel. And it's a good future, even though it's a difficult road. So we need to trust that God knows what he's doing. God will always keep his promises. God will never let me go or reject me, no matter how badly I stumble or fall. So people look at the Jews and they say, oh, they reject the Messiah. Look, we sin. We stumble, we fall. We make a mess of our lives sometimes. But God doesn't reject us. And he hasn't rejected the Jews either. If God had rejected the Jews, if that was actually true, if replacement theology was true, I'd be worried. Because if they sinned and God rejected them because of their sin, the same could be true for us too. So, to finish, I just want to read through Revelation 12, 1 to 11. I just remind you of how much trouble Satan has gone to to persecute Israel, the nation of Israel. And I did promise last week that I would show you how Satan condemns us, but Christ defends us. So Satan condemns us, but Christ defends us. If we belong to him, we're defended by Jesus if we belong to him, if we are his child. So, as we go through, we need to Remember some of the signs that we learnt last week? We, last week we went into the scriptures and dug in and figured out what all these things meant. Scripturally, we proved it. So the woman, as we read through Revelation 12, the woman represents Israel. The dragon represents Satan. The man-child is referring to Jesus. The angel Michael is the head of the angelic host. He's Michael the archangel. 
So Revelation 12, 1 to 10. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. So who is that? Genesis tells us that's Israel. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. So at the time Jesus was given birth to by the nation of Israel, they were under Roman occupation. It was true. It was a difficult time for them. Another sign appeared in heaven, verse 3, and behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadem on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. If you go to verse 9, it tells you, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So it self-explains. The fiery dragon is Satan. It's interesting, he drew a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth when Satan rebelled. It doesn't say this in the Old Testament, but here it tells us that when Satan rebelled against God, he actually rebelled with a third of all the angels and they were cast out of heaven. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And last week we talked about all the babies being killed in Bethlehem and its districts after the wise men were warned in a dream to go away. So, sorry, we've done all the background to this last week. And then the child was caught up to God on his throne. So this is a reference to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So Jesus was killed, then he was put in a tomb, but he rose again and ascended. And now he is, as it says here, to God and his throne. He's in heaven now. Now between verses 5 and 6, there's a long time gap. Verse 5 has already passed. It's already happened. It's been fulfilled. Verse 6 is yet to happen. Verse 6 is in the middle of the tribulation period when the Antichrist turns on the nation of Israel. So then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's the second half of the tribulation. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So, who deceives the whole world? Would you say the world is in a state of deception? That's what's happening. This is true. He is deceiving the whole world. Now, here at the halfway point of the tribulation, Satan is cast out of heaven. This means that he's lost his access to heaven. He can't accuse us anymore. And that explains why it says in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. So we'll stop there. The accuser of our brethren, Satan is the accuser who accuses us before the throne. Satan, even though Christ won the victory over him on the cross, he still had access to heaven to accuse us. And it's not until the halfway point of the tribulation that there's this massive battle in heaven and he's actually kicked out forever. He's not allowed access to heaven anymore. 
So here's an application for us. We have an accuser. What do you need if someone's accusing you in a court situation? You need a lawyer. So we have a lawyer. We have a great high priest who stands before the Father. And think of it this way. (laughs) A secret sin down here is an open scandal in heaven. All right, a secret sin down here is an open scandal in heaven. We think we can hide our sin. No one saw that. I got away with that. But all of heaven's watching. Scary. (laughs) And God knows everything we think. I don't know if the angels know what we're thinking. I hope they don't. So, (laughs) anyway, our lives are on display for all of heaven to watch. So Satan knows what we're doing, and he's accusing us, but Jesus is defending us. So here's a verse that shows us what's happening, or explains how Jesus defends us. It's the basis of his defense for us as his child, if we are saved. It says in 1 John 2, 1-2, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous or perfect. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world, or sins of all the world. So it's important that we understand that we will never stand before God because of something we did, because we were good enough. We can never be good enough. The only way we can have good standing before the Father, before God, is by the blood of Jesus. We can only be made clean by the blood of Jesus. We can only be declared not guilty because Jesus paid our fine. So it's Jesus who is the one who pleads our case, who defends us. He's our advocate, our defense lawyer. He's before the Father. He's described as being truly righteous or perfect. Now, why did Jesus need to be perfect? Well, it says in verse 2 there, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Well, all through the Old Testament, the sacrifice had to be a perfect lamb. The Passover had to have a perfect lamb. Picture of Jesus. So he had to be perfect. He had to live a perfect life. So God's divine justice was satisfied by Jesus on the cross. God became a man and willingly paid the penalty for the sins of all people. So I look at it like this. In heaven, there is a pardon for every individual. There's one with my name on it. Not literally a piece of paper. Just imagine it that way. David. Payment for all David's sins, past, present, and future. Now, I have received my pardon. I've taken it, and it's mine. I have repented of my sins. I'm living a life for God by the power of God, by the the Holy Spirit living in me, by faith. I've asked Jesus to forgive me of all my sins. I've trusted that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a full payment, the complete payment for all sins I've committed and will commit. I understand that because Jesus' death was a full payment for all my sins, and I've asked him to forgive me, that I am now declared innocent in God's sight. It's pretty good, eh? And this is awesome. I'm innocent, declared not guilty. The weight of my sin... The burden of my sin or my guilt has been removed. I am free from all condemnation. So Romans 8.1, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So when Satan accuses us, he brings 
condemnation. But if we're a believer, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. To belong to Christ Jesus means that you're saved, you've repented, asked God to forgive you. And once that happens, then no one can condemn you. Not your mother, not your children, not your friend, not Satan, not anyone. Because in God's eyes, you are not guilty, you are pure. Right? However, there are many people who snub God's great gift of pardon or forgiveness. They want to live life their own way, and so their pardon which is already paid for, is never applied or received. So Jesus had made salvation available to all mankind, but not everybody wants to receive it. And I thought of it like this. It's like me writing a check for a million dollars and giving it to you. And you put it in your wallet, or in your pocket, or under your bed, or whatever, and you never cash it. Now I've put the million dollars, if I had it, <laughs> I've put the million dollars in my bank account ready for you to use. Okay, at great cost to myself, at great sacrifice to myself, I've given, I've put the million dollars there available to use. But until you cash that check, you'll never get the benefit, will never realize the benefit of my sacrifice for you, my gift to you. Does that make sense? So everybody has the opportunity to be saved, but not everybody takes the opportunity to be saved. Okay? Now, can you get to heaven by working? No, because it's a gift. A gift is something you receive. Receiving a gift is not classified as work because you're getting something for nothing. So picture this in heaven. Satan accusing and Jesus defending. So imagine Satan accusing me. He might say, David lied three times today, had two lustful thoughts, was selfish 12 times and got angry twice. David is guilty. <laughs> the kids are laughing. <laughs> All right. David deserves to die for his sin. The father says to Jesus, is this true? Jesus says, yes, these things are true. But it's okay. David is your child. He has been adopted into the family of God. David has accepted my gift of forgiveness. Therefore, all those sins are already forgiven. David is pure and innocent, washed clean by my blood shed on the cross. The father then says, case dismissed, as Satan walks away with his tail between his legs. No condemnation. Satan can accuse the believer as much as he wants, but he can never win. You need to remember that in God's eyes you are forgiven. You are clean. You are pure. There is no condemnation. So basically, for those who humble themselves, confessing that they're sinners, admitting the guilt of breaking God's laws multiple times, and understanding that they are rightfully deserving of death, the eternal separation from God in hell, those who do humble themselves and ask God to forgive them, understanding that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for their sins, they will be declared not guilty. If you do that, God will forgive you and you'll be adopted into God's great family. God's spirit will come and live in you and if you die, you'll go to be with Jesus in heaven. You'll never be alone again. Eternal life starts the moment you're saved because the spirit is inside of you. It's a guarantee that when you die, you're going to be with God in heaven. And God also gives you the strength and desires to live the life he wants you to live. So 
today. It's a bit of a, uh, a convoluted message. It's not usually like this. But I wanted to get this thing across about the false message of the replacement theology because that's one of the things that Satan is using to hurt the Jews. Chapter 12 is about Satan persecuting the Jews. And as an application, Satan also persecutes us. He accuses and condemns, or tries to condemn, Christians. The accuser of the brethren. So our defense is the blood of Christ. Yeah. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this chapter. Lord, thank you that we can look back in history and we can see the mistakes that have been made. We can see that ideas have consequences. And Lord, we can see where things lead if we follow down the wrong track. Lord, help us to just read your word simply and just read it as it's written. Lord, I pray that your spirit will teach us and will guide us into all truth, that we won't try and figure things out ourselves using our own intellect and fleshly wisdom, but Lord, we'd submit our thinking to you and allow you to lead and guide us as we spend more and more time in prayer and in your word. Lord, you promise to lead us into all truth. You promise that your spirit will teach us all things. So I pray that you will fulfill that promise in us. Lord, help us to understand that we are not condemned. Lord, that we are declared innocent. And when those condemning voices come, or even when we condemn ourselves as Christians, we can still do that. Help us not to wallow in self-pity, but Lord, to realize and to claim that promise that we are forgiven, we are clean, we are declared innocent, we are not guilty. We have right standing, we have free access to the throne of God. So thank you, Father, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.